0: Welcome to season two of Protecting Your Assets with Lucky Luciano Cedroni and Brian the Angry Man Clayman. Hello, and welcome to Protecting Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedroni, and with my co-host Brian the Angry Man Clayman, we're here starting season two of Protecting Your Assets, beginning with what's keeping you up at night. And on today, our first episode of season two, we're going to be talking about what makes a good stakeholder. Uh, For business owners uh, looking to to instill a security program. (laughs) So with that, I'm going to get right into it. We want to keep these fairly short um, and to the point. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Brian, with our customary opening uh, discussion around what's in the news and what's keeping you up at night.
1: Well, what's keeping me up at night is, I think, what's in the news. I mean, it's been a very active news cycle. We've got the elections coming up in the States. We've got COVID here in Canada. There's a lot of people that are confused or angry that's out there. And I think the thing that keeps me up at night, especially if I was still in charge of security for a big corporation, would be security theater. The mistaken illusion that people have that run security programs for businesses, that they are properly prepared. And I think of When I was a Boy Scout, and their motto, always be prepared. I think that's elusive insecurity in many cases for many organizations, not all, but it's certainly in the commercial real estate side. You know, I've seen some really, really great programs out there, and I've seen many more that failed to really produce, failed to really uh, yield any sort of a result. And I remember I used to go to bed at night, especially when I took over a new uh, portfolio of buildings from another company. And I'd go to bed at night wondering, when I wake up in the morning, what would have happened overnight? What catastrophe would I be dealing with uh, in the morning when I wake up? I just finished reading a book by General uh, Mattis, former Secretary of Defense, four-star Marine General. And he says something that has driven him his whole military life uh, as a leader and basically to be mission-focused to always know exactly what the mission is, what the goal is of his Marines, of the campaign he's going into, and what the end game was and how he would measure success. And I sort of always looked at leadership and management the same way. As a security person, especially now as a security consultant, I'll ask my clients, okay, you're spending a million in security. Why? Why do you have security? What is it they're going to accomplish? How are you going to know if they're falling off track? And how are you going to know when you get to where you want to get to? So I think that's what I want to see what keeps me up at night. I really think that, generally speaking, with the tumultuous tumultuous times ahead of us, I think that a lot of people are in for some surprises, thinking they're prepared to deal with the turmoil that might be around the corner, but if it hits, to find out how ill-prepared they are. What do you think, Mr. Cedroni?
0: Yes, I agree. All the signs that we see around us are certainly not uh, positive ones. When you talk about uh, polling stations having to ban open carrier uh, holsters, I mean, that's just scary to think that, that that's a concern. Uh, but that's what they've created. Uh, so and for me, in terms of what I've seen in the last few days, uh, what's concerning, I think two of them that come back to previous episodes are actually from season one. The first one is the, the terrible beheading in, uh, in France of the, the teacher who, put up some, uh, well, reposted the cartoons or shared the cartoons of Muhammad with his, uh, with his classmates that were, uh, that were released by Charlie Hebdo uh, a few years ago now and, yep. and led to a serious killing. Um, and then again, so I, he, he shared those with his classmates and he ended up being beheaded by them. And now last count, I think they had 11 or 12 people arrested in, in relation to that. So it seems like a pretty big spider web of, of suspects coming together to, to fulfill that unfortunate end. But really, the point of that being a reminder to our listeners that it's not just about COVID, even though that's been on our radar for the 24-7 cycle, it seems, over the last six, seven months, uh, those threats are still out there. And, uh, you know, France actually responded to that by dispelling, I think, probably about 50 or 60 uh, suspected uh, or people who are on their terrorist watch list out of the country. So they're concerned enough to throw those people out. Um, And that's not to say that it can't happen here in Canada or the U.S. So a reminder to our business listeners that there are other threats out there. You need to be uh, cognizant of and don't forget to lock that back door, as I said, because you're focused on something else. The other one I wanted to really touch on again is also reinforces what our messaging has been. And this one is going to we didn't talk about this before the show, uh, Brian, but I forgot. And it's a good one. It's uh, an article put out by a a website called Gartner, and they do uh, cybersecurity And they released it back in September 17th. I'd like to think they probably heard our podcast and took credit, but (laughs) it was before. Um, But basically, they talk about the top trends in uh, cybersecurity into 2021. And number one to four all relate to the rise of AI and how that's going to streamline functions and things like that. But the interesting one is really trend number five, which speaks to their belief that The CSO, the chief security officer, is going to become the preeminent security uh, overseer for enterprises. So basically all those cyber components that we talked about, if you remember the cyber taken away from physical, they're saying that that's all going to come together under one CSO uh, head, which is what we talked about on the website. So it's just interesting to see that there are others with a lot more expertise than you and I agreeing with what we're saying.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting they said that after we had our podcast. I'm just wondering who we should send the invoice to, for people stealing ideas. But you know what? You, you know, you talked about how COVID has dominated the news cycle, I think, for the last seven or eight months, and then Gartner puts out their top five or top ten security uh, cyber threats. Really, at the end of the day, as a practitioner, I just look at the world of uh, it doesn't matter what the threat is. It's sort of that all all-hazard approach, you know, yeah. like. Two plus four is six. Uh, three plus x is y. The x and the y are the unknowns. So you just so if x is COVID, you replace COVID with a cyber attack, or you replace the cyber attack with a terrorist attack. And my point being, when I talk about security theater or the illusion of security, what keeps me up at night, my biggest fear is that people think they're prepared and they're not. You know, for example, imagine this. I'm going to talk about COVID. But if you look at uh, when we went into phase three here in Ontario anyways, and the restaurants started opening up, okay? And the restaurants started saying, okay, we're going to be able to serve on the patio and then in time inside, but we'll have to rearrange our seating. And they were laser focused on that, okay? And they were mission focused, which is good, is what I say you need to be. But you've got to be looking at the periphery. And they failed to look at the fact that, okay, life was getting back to normal. But now we're back in the phase two, and they don't have a plan because they were focused one-dimensionally. And that's what keeps me up at night again, as I said. Our security programs as a general rule, except for a few very sophisticated programs, are not robust enough in order to deal with the unknown. And it's easy to plan for an event. It's hard to plan for what you don't know, and that's why the all-hazard approach is important. That has always kept me up at night. You know, whenever I deal with a client, we've got a couple of big projects on the go right now. Clients can't get their head around the fact that they've got to prepare for anything, not just one particular thing. And that's real risk that people have to really kind of grips with. And the way you deal with that is because you can't think of everything, you have to make sure that the thought leadership in the enterprise, the people that are driving the security program, have the uh, knowledge and the ability to pivot to deal with the unknown that's going to come. And Uh, again, I think that's where security fails time after time after time.
0: That's that's a good segue. You probably made it by accident, but I'll give you the credit. It's a good segue (laughs) into
1: today's topic, which is really,
0: I think, about uh, identifying who those stakeholders should be in your business or your company that drive that security vision and the, the expectations, the benchmarks. We always talk about reaching out to stakeholders, including the stakeholders, you know, notify the stakeholders. What is a stakeholder is often the question, right? Like, who should we be including in those discussions? Who should be driving those discussions? Because all too often, I think the wrong people are at the table, people who don't need to be there, and and often, often overcomplicate the issues with their points of view. Uh, comes from a place where, you know, maybe they they have good intentions, but they really don't have the expertise to be speaking to the security issues at hand. So we talked about some of the challenges we faced in, in our previous lives about identifying stakeholders. And let's open up that discussion now for our, for our listeners and help them sort of give them some direction as to who they should be considering needs to be at the table. How do they figure out who those people are? And what is the difference between those who have vision in the game, who develop the vision versus the ones who are going to be the the tactical response, the ones who make that vision become a reality? How do you identify those stakeholders?
1: You know, I think that's an important question. I think that's sort of a root problem to much of what's wrong with security. And I'll sort of start my thoughts on this with some examples. In all the years that I've been in security, in the last 12 or 15 in the commercial real estate uh, sphere, it's interesting when you talk about stakeholders because when it comes to security, Everyone is a stakeholder. However, I was never a stakeholder when we had discussions on leasing or what the uh, tax strategy should be. And nor should I have been a stakeholder because I brought nothing to the table. Now, you can make the argument that I am going to be a beneficiary of the decisions made because if we screw that up, I won't have a job because we won't have a business. But I think there's different types of stakeholders. And I think that's that's elusive to the thinking of many... uh, uh, business leaders. Clearly, there are strategic stakeholders. I think it's fair to say, again, if we look at commercial real estate or look at manufacturing or any type of business type thing, I think the executive, I think the leaders of the company are stakeholders to degree. They're strategic stakeholders. They may say, for example, the banks and the fintech, they may say that the role of security is to protect us and protect our clients from uh, compromise and protect uh, the brand and reputation of the institution. Well, I think that's sort of a strategic stakeholder, and I think that's where they belong. The problem becomes when the strate- strategic stakeholder becomes a tactical or execution stakeholder. I had this discussion with one of our uh, associates on our engineering side, and we were talking about a project, and the question came up, well, we've got to talk with the client. We've got to talk with the stakeholders at the client to see what they think. And I said, which is typical Brian, who cares what they think? I mean, what they think is they want a security system, cameras, alarms, that works, that protects the enterprise. I don't need them to tell me that they want a camera here and it's got to be Sony lumens of light and pixels and things like that. They don't have that skill set. That's why they hired us to tell them what they need at the execution level. So I think often programs fail, not just security programs, all programs. When there's too many people at the table of stakeholders and the role of the stakeholder is not properly defined.
0: Yeah, I think to add to that, there really are different types of stakeholders at different levels for different purposes. And to your point, there's a stakeholder at the strategic level. Yes, you know, the CEO, the VP, uh, the SVP, whatever those, those position titles are that may speak to the overall security vision for the company but as you get lower into the gra- into the uh, grassroots of of the response the organization the policy and pre- procedures the stakeholders who should be at the table are going to change as you get more and more to to the ground level so to speak you know i remember how many times and i know we you've had this experience as well where you've got an emergency going on and you've got an incident command team set up, you've got yourself set up as the incident commander or your security manager, and they're managing all the information. At that point, the stakeholders are in the EOC. Your emergency management team are your stakeholders. Even though the CEO wants to know, he's not part of that group. He's part of it at, a, at arm's length. You feed back to him, you report back to him. But to have those types of people in the, uh, in the response room tends to overcomplicate those things. So when I say stakeholders... Uh, change with the, with the the situation and the uh, the group that you're dealing with, that's what I'm sort of referring to. You could be a stakeholder at one level, and you may not be a stakeholder for the same incident regarding a different type of uh, operation or, or uh, response. Does that make sense? Uh,
1: no. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. I'm going to refer back to what I said earlier and what keeps me up when I talked about General Mattis, four-star United States Marine Corps General. I love looking at military uh, history and how military leaders make decisions. And one of the things in his recent book, General Mattis said, and again, for those that may think the name is familiar but don't can't place him, he was the uh, Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump, who finally had enough, and, and the, he, it's not sure if he quit or Trump fired him. I think he quit. He resigned. But he basically said that his vision of leadership, especially when he was in Afghanistan, and the way you manage a big organization, and this is directly transferable to uh, corporations and and businesses, is that as the commanding general, his job was to develop the strategy. He developed the strategy based on what Congress said the objective was. So the the political leaders say, we want you to liberate Iraq, let's say, whatever the mission is, okay? Well, the C-suite business say, we want to dominate the market. We want to make sure that we are not, uh, we want to dominate the market. So if you listen to General Mattis, okay, uh, the security leader VP and the leaders of the company, their job is to say, how does my discipline support the core mission of the corporation? And security, you might say, we want to prevent uh, things that can disrail that, 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 that mission, that vision. So uh, it would be intellectual property theft. It would be safety of employees that have to do the job. Identify what those things are. So the security leader has to create the mission for security. But what Mattis does, which I think a lot of leaders don't do because we all like to micromanage to a degree, is that he surrounds himself with confident people, he trusts the people, and he has a decentralized command. He lets different levels of the military organization, right down to his sergeants in the field, are empowered to make decisions. I think that's what we have to do, and that's why I have so much problem with stakeholders, this discussion with stakeholders. It's okay for the client stakeholder or for the C-suite stakeholder to say, this is what I want my security team to do. But the execution has to be, or or the strategy is uh, formulated by the security leader. And then everyone in the security organization, right down to the lowest guard, has to be empowered and allowed to make decisions within their span of responsibility, because that's the only way you're going to succeed, and that's the only way you're going to steer a big ship. And that's the part that's always missing. Luke, I can't tell you how many times, and I don't want to say this too loud, so maybe you can bleep this out so our clients don't hear this, but they'll pay a lot of money to us to put together a security program to do a review, only not to read it at the end. And not to execute, because they had a vision that they want to, or, or the opposite is true, by the way, they read it and then they change it. And they change it not for the better, in my opinion, they change it from a, a micromanagement point of view. And, and that's a waste. You have to, if you've retained our firm as your consultant, it's because you believe you know what we're doing. So give us the opportunity to guide you. And that's the failure with stakeholders sometimes. Tell stakeholders to run amok, to tell you, this is what I want, A, B, C, D, and you just do it, then you're no longer a security professional. You're just sort of executing on someone who doesn't have the skill sets, vision. Your job is to challenge it. And that's, that's a challenge I have with stakeholders. One more thing I'll just say very quickly. In my last job, I remember often, you know, in commercial real estate, it's really interesting because you've got the owner of the building, and then you've got the management company, and then you've got the tenants. And the question I always had, and, I sometimes, and most of the times we didn't have agreement with senior leadership, well, who's the stakeholder? And I would say, the stakeholder or the customer is the owner of the building. And they would say, no, it's the tenant. And I'm saying, no, it's not the tenant. It's the owner of the building. And we couldn't figure out who we're working for. And you can't be working for everyone. You have to decide, because if you're working for everyone equally, you're going to fail. You have to be laser focused on who you're working for and what you're trying to do.
0: Some good points there, Brian. The one that stuck out for me was the uh, when you talked about empowerment. To me, a good leader, like you said, and the General there does, and most great leaders do, you surround yourself with people who can follow through on your vision and, and also on their expertise, right? Because I don't profess to know a lot. Uh, but I surround myself with good with good people who can fulfill things that I need to do that I don't know the first thing about doing. So you, you surround it. yourself
1: with me for starters. Yeah, that's why exactly. you're brilliant.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you talk when you talk about empowering, I mean that's critical because those people, if you're going to make me a stakeholder, that means you have skin in the game. And to have skin in the game, I have to be empowered to own own that, to take responsibility, to to take some action. And a lot of times, to your point, when you, especially, when you, especially when you get down to the lower levels of the, uh, the tactical response, the everyday operations, if those front-end people don't feel empowered, they are stakeholders. They may not be the CEO stakeholder, but they're a guard stakeholder. He's a stakeholder in how he's responding to people. He's a stakeholder in how the program is being uh, communicated to your exactly. clients. So if they, don't, if they don't feel that sense of empowerment, then that, that, that vision of yours is going to fall flat on his face. Um, and, uh, you know, a great example of that would be when you we had uh, the shooter up in, uh, in, in Ottawa, the active shooter there up in Ottawa, who uh, yeah. ended up killing um, the, the, the guard at the Memorial
1: Night. But, yeah, yes, it was a terrorist attack. People was yeah. the terrorist, yeah.
0: And, and I remember hearing from, uh, you know, one of our competitors how the guard supervisor at site had the authority, the confidence, and yeah. the empowerment to be able to shut down that property. For, for, for the morning rush so you can imagine the power, the pressure that was on him because if anything gms pms they want that friggin building to be open regardless at all costs no matter who you work for they don't want to stop business and for that supervisor to make that decision without management's approval because he couldn't get a hold of them speaks to the empowering of the stakeholders in that security program. I think it's important to, to, as a leader to and a stakeholder, to make sure that your stakeholders are empowered to do what's expected of them and not just sit on the sidelines so they can say, I was part of that committee, I was part of that group. To me, those kinds of guys, I don't need them. Get them off my, my, my
1: committee. Yeah, and I think you're, you're right. And I think to do that, though, it takes a master plan. And I think that's, I refer to that as business acumen. And that's what's often lacking. We have a lot of people in business. You know, I've often said this, that there are a lot of senior people with neat titles of VP and SVP and VP, you know, EVP and what have you. But there's very few leaders. And what I've noticed, my for instance, has been, especially when you look at how they do it in the military, in business we have leaders. So the CFO may have been, re- you know, really good at what he does, so he became the CFO. And the sales guy, the SVP of sales, was a great salesperson, and he he brought a lot of uh, clients into the business. But none of them is a leader, because leadership's not about having expertise necessarily in the subject matter. It's about plotting a vision and inspiring people to fulfill that vision. Another one of my heroes, Colin Powell, another four-star general, talked in his memoirs of the Gulf War that it was really important that once the plan was developed and articulated, it down to the lonely uh, private understood the plan now of course the private's not going to understand the plan the way the officer is going to understand it but understand the plan but more importantly what his role was in the plan and he said in his book even the private was cleaning out the latrines he had he had to understand why he was out there in the desert with 140 degree weather going through that pardon the pun shitty job of cleaning the latrines and why that was important to mission success Somehow that gets lost in business because we don 't empower you 're just a dumb security guard you 're just a stupid security manager you 're just a director of security we don 't and we do that either because we 're poor leaders or well we because of poor leadership because if you had good leaders, you would get good people in place and what do you do when you have a good team? You stand back and you let the team operate, you give them the terms of reference and let the teams operate. That sort of goes back to what keeps me up at night. We do, as a general rule, a terrible job at that. And when you talk about stakeholders, you've got to identify the right stakeholders, but not all stakeholders are equal. And again, I've seen over my 40-plus careers, this is sort of the root cause of the failure in programs that should be performing at a much higher level. When you do an after-action review of why we didn't respond the way we thought we were going to respond, it's because that structure is lacking. Because people were paralyzed like a deer with his uh, looking into the headlights. That Rideau Canal terrorist attack you talked about with that guard or that supervisor that made the decision to close the mall. That's because he was empowered. He knew what his man of authority was. They rehearsed it, and he was empowered to make the right decision. I got to tell you one more thing that my buddy General uh, Mattis said, Mad Dog Mattis. He said that if I have one of my, and they utterly fail at the mission. But they tried. He says there's no, uh, it's not a negative thing. He says they will be sanctioned if they're blinded like the deer in the headlights. But if they try, they analyze, evaluate the information, make the best available decision, but it's still not right enough. That's not a mission failure. It's regrettable, but that person didn't fail. The system worked. More often than large, it will work. And that's where when you look at where we fail uh, in protecting our clients and businesses, because of that
0: well yeah and i think it's because our focus is in the wrong area it's, uh, you know it's, it's all about money profits and any decision that impacts that uh, tends to drive the whether it's good or not you talk about like asset managers how many of them dis- disparage security they don't include us in in high level uh, meetings they make commitments to tenants without knowing what our capabilities are what our authorities are what our legal authorities are and they don't make us part of the conversation because they think we're going to impact that bottom line. We're going to increase costs. And that's just the wrong, that's a poor view of of what we do. First of all, it's a misunderstanding of what we do. You have to have us at the table because when you're talking about security, you got to have the security manager there to speak to it.
1: Yeah, but I'm going to disagree with you in the sense that, you know, I think cost is important. I think profit is important. It's, you know, the military is in business to win a battle. Companies are in business to win a battle of profitability for the shareholders. So that's not the problem. Again, I put it back on our shoulders, how is it that other uh, groups within the enterprise are able to succeed and security often has a hard time? It's because often we don't have the right talent with the right business acumen to navigate it, to navigate through the business, to look at the money guys, look at the asset managers and say, I know you want to cut cost. I know you want to get maximized value. Well, this is how I can do it for you we have to be more than just experts of putting handcuffs on and how do we give out a pass card. We've got to be business people first with the security portfolio. We've got to raise our game. And I know that guys like you and the guys that we hang with and a lot of the senior security leaders that you and I are good friends with, that we look up to, that we learn from, they are business. They're very shrewd business people. But I think most of us aren't. And I think a lot of our vendors aren't. I mean, it's an emotional product. You know, when you're buying a security guard service, when you're buying a camera system, you're dealing with salespeople. They're trying to move product. They're not really trying to understand the need. They're trying to close the deal. And I've got no problem with that. You know, before they start sending death threats to my email for saying bad things about them, that's what they get paid to do. Shame on me if I get screwed. What, if I ask the right questions, I'm going to uh, uh, force my service providers to raise uh, their game. It's incumbent on us. I've always said, and I'll continue to say it, and I know you and I disagree on this point, but the failure starts with us. We've got to raise the bar on ourselves, we've got to earn the respect, and then we've got to claim the prize. Yeah, and we I do that to... by, by identifying the right group of stakeholders and managing upwards and managing downwards.
0: Yeah, and as usual, I'm going to disagree with you <laughs> on some of those points because the buck doesn't stop with me. It's, I'm not the guy who holds the purse strings. I'm there to educate and uh, advise and help get the project together and figure out what's going on with the needs are and all that. But at the end of the day, if my boss, my CEO is not a supporter, or more importantly, some guy in procurement wants to buy product B because it's 50% cheaper, it's not, like, there's not much you can do. And that's what I think most of our security uh, peers are stuck with. Most of them do not work for large organizations that have a robust security program with an established structure that they can reach out to the allies and help justify their case. But I know even in some of the companies I've worked for, it's been a challenge to get certainly property managers to say, you know, spend the extra 15 percent on whatever product because it's a better product. It's going to last you more in the long run. It's going to give you less headaches in the, in the long run. At the end of the day, they don't care about the long run. They care about tomorrow because that's when their budgets are due. And that's what they're going to be held accountable to. And damn the the the, the you know damn the whatever the the, the,
1: the say. Damn is. the torpedoes Damn the torpedoes yeah. exactly. I'm
0: going to the- go with the cheapest one because it makes me look great on my performance review this year, and that's all I'm, that matters to me. How do you how do how can you blame the security manager when he's dealing with that kind of attitude? And that I
1: think is the prevalent attitude in the industry. Let me ask you a question. Would you work in an environment where people belittled you and didn't appreciate the value you brought to the table? Would you work for an organization that treated you as if you were the security guard watching the door leading into the uh, storage room? You wouldn't work in that environment. You would say, no, listen, if you're not going to do the right thing, if you're not going to take uh, advantage of what I can bring to the table, then I'm not going to be here. If you look at you worked for that other company I forget the name, that big real estate company you worked for a co- you worked for many actually you can't hold a job, I think. but <laughs> you, you worked for that company and look at the people that were SVPs in leasing or in development. if they weren't bringing value, they wouldn't be there. How is it that they have to earn their stripes to be there at the table to be taken seriously but we don't. We have to, and unless we do that, we raise the bar, we're not going to get the attention. You know, what used to kill me, especially when I was down in the financial district, people often said, you know, the Toronto police, they just don't take us seriously. And I always said, but why should they? We are the gumball brigades. Until we raise the bar on ourselves, why would we ask them to take us seriously? And organizations like the Eaton Centre, TD Centre, Brookfield Place, Royal Bank Plaza, even the ones I worked at where we raised the bar, we got taken seriously because we did it. We forced the issue. That's the job of a leader.
0: Right. And and, Okay, you raised the bar. And what, without uh, (laughs) getting ourselves into trouble, but how many of our peers, how many have, have our experiences shown that once you're gone, what happens to that? Which means you've never sold nothing. It was your persona that allowed that, traction to happen but they don't believe in it they only they you were successful in spite of their disbelief that that that's my my response to that and let's talk about some of our friends you know we, we've been on some of those calls and it is a perfect example in, in a couple of those major organizations where it was security 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 and then overnight oh by the way you're not responsible for that it and cybersecurity anymore we're going to give it back to it If they valued you, if they valued your opinion and what you brought to the table, they wouldn't just do that overnight and not give you visibility to it.
1: You should have some say. So really what you've done, my friend, is you just put a bullet, a death knell (laughs) into security. I think what you said, and I don't know that was your intention, (laughs) that it doesn't really matter. Whether we have security or don't, it's not going to change anything. And you know what? I'm not saying you're wrong. (laughs) I hope you're wrong. I'm not saying you're right. But you know, if if you said we don't care about sales, we don't care if you bring business in, well, the business is going to be severely impacted if they don't have customers. Yeah. But if we say security is important, we got to protect brand reputation, asset, and bad things happen, and brand is not impacted, assets not impacted, tenants still keep coming. Tylenol, if they make medicine when they had the tampering, and if it didn't matter and didn't make a change, they wouldn't be in business. So if you're right, and I know you're wrong, as you usually are, <laughs> okay. You're right. I think a lot of the success that I've enjoyed, and I believe you as well, has been on the strength of my personality. But I'll put my hand up and say the failure was, and I always said that when we worked together downtown, is that if the things that we were part of and the different groups and associations we started, if they couldn't live beyond us, then we didn't succeed. Because it's easy to be a bull in a china shop and drive something – but you have to change the way business is done, and that's the measure. So I think really what you're saying is it's a lot harder where we live. It is impactful, but it's harder where we live. And when we make a mistake, okay, when there's a security failure, people maybe don't know who to point at. But I really think it is harder, but I think it is important. I just think that there's not many security leaders that are able to meet that. There, you know, there, there are a lot, but, but, but there's not enough. And certainly with the mid-sized companies that have the same uh, uh, risks and threats they face, a lot of the people – listen, I can't tell you how many clients that I deal with and when I meet with their security managers, it's some guy making $40,000 a year that works for a security service provider, and he got the job because he was good as a guard, okay? We know our peers have master's degrees in in, in security leadership and and management or CPPs and designations, I mean – you, 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 you know, that's what you need, but a lot of businesses don't understand it, and I believe they're at risk.
0: Yeah, I agree they're at
1: risk, absolutely.
0: But I'd also say, again, that the, the challenge with um, sustaining that movement, as, as we were talking about, is that we're not appreciated. That's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that security isn't important. It is important, and, and, and legislation is We'll show anyone that, that that's the case. And it's going to become more important as we go forward because owners are becoming more and more liable for the fa- uh, failures of security. But the point on my end is that it's really viewed as a, a check mark, right? We always talk about the check mark. Do we have security? They check it off. It's not a value add in the eyes of most companies. I think it's, a, it's still perceived as a risk. And I know you're going to say that's a security manager's job. No, teach you it that it's not.
1: But okay. So what? So what's your point? I, I, I mean, stop complaining. How do we yes. move the ball? Because that's what we're for. That's what the podcast is for. And that's what, And if you don't get this right, go do another <laughs> podcast. We're finished. No, no. But you're right. I, I mean, that that's the state of the union. So how are we going to change it?
0: I think the industry is going in the right direction by professionalizing the job. That I think is a no-brainer as much as I know there's some providers out there who hate it. And yeah, anybody with a pulse can get a friggin' guarding license. But you got to start somewhere. And the way we were, you know, I go back to, I equate it to the construction industry in the 70s and 80s. I used to go to work with, with my dad. And you, you could be an electrician. Just build and you're an electrician in those days. Try and be an electrician today it's impossible. You got to have the certifications, you got to have the proper documents or you don't you don't work. And with that comes certain benefits, respectability, an acknowledgment that you're a professional and everything that falls from that. I think security is in the midst of uh, they're in the process of getting there and it's probably going to take us a little longer because what I was going to say was security just isn't viewed with the same value as those other things. So electricity, for example, you can't do anything without electricity. So there's a priority to get that service up there and running the way it should. And I would argue the same thing with with, mostly prop, with most property managers. How many times have you been in those meetings where marketing has come up with this great vision of a service, right? Uh, let's talk like the FOBs. They all want to move to this FOB technology or, or phone technology so that the employee can buzz through the door from 16 feet away. All right? And then you sit in those meetings and you're saying, How the hell can you justify a 16-foot radius? Oh, well, you know, you might have packages in their hands and things like that. Okay. And how many people can walk between those 16 feet between when the client gets through the door? Oh, well, we didn't think about that. Well, why wasn't security involved to begin with? Well, we didn't think about that. And that's my point. If we were selling frickin' roses or if we were selling chairs for employees to sit on, we'd get more respectability from those asset managers and property managers because it's a service that goes direct to the client. It's facing the public, whereas client, where security is still something they prefer to keep in the background. We don't want people to know that there's thefts going on in this property. We don't want people to know that there's assaults going on in, in, in the parking lot. Like that's sort of where I, my head's at. I think that's been a disservice to, to the profession. But I think as we get more professional, we get more guys in the job and girls in the job that understand what it's supposed to do, the liabilities involved. And are better able to communicate that to the upper channels, the upper stakeholders. Getting back to that terminology, then we will eventually get there. But right now, I think we're in transition. It's not, it's not a, it's not a black and white, you know, right or wrong answer. I think it's just a, a shit show right now that we got to well, negotiate.
1: Well, you know, I think you know we're probably doing better actually make tears in my eyes I think we're doing better than maybe you said even I alluded to the fact that we have this podcast with 125,000 listeners every uh, episode <laughs> I mean people are starting to pay attention uh you're right and, and you know it's interesting when I look at the our clients the people that engage our services and the services of other professional security consultants and managers companies these are people that uh, it's not because uh, their industry associations are saying that you need security. These are people that know that uh, that are trying to value engineer what it is they do and realize security is an achilles it 's something they 're not really good at and they 're reaching out proactively. so I do see light at the end of the tunnel you know I, I, we, we are moving in the right direction, but I think to sort of bring it back to stakeholders it 's important to get the right people at the table at the onset. To define what their role is as a stakeholder, what type of stakeholder they are, but to keep them engaged throughout the life cycle of what it is that you're doing, so that it really is that you have the strategy. There's the execution model. You you validate. Uh, you identify the KPIs. How do you know that we're moving in the right direction? And then you assess and readjust. And I think you do that by identifying the key stakeholders and keeping them engaged.
0: I'm not even going to argue with that. Finally, you said something that made sense. <laughs>
1: it, it's very hard working with you. And I notice, you know, we're doing it uh, remotely because of COVID. And I'm looking at your screen. And I don't know how you do this. There's a halo over your head. I'm just seeing brightness wherever you talk. And I don't know how you did that, but it is alive, folks. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: just noticed that
1: yeah
0: oh <laughs> uh, all right so <laughs> i think that's a good uh a good opening conversation on uh, for season two lots of passion i think and some good discussion uh we don't certainly see eye to eye on everything and that's that, that's what makes it fun but the, is there anything you wanted to touch on that we haven't uh hit w- regarding stakeholders brian or we good to go on the for season for episode two actually
1: No, I think we're good to go. I know uh, under the context of what keeps me up, and this doesn't keep me up, but it gets me excited. It's going to be incredible TV in the next couple of weeks with this election cycle. And uh, I'm just really excited to see where it goes. I really think there could be some social disorder, certainly south of uh, the border. I think it's sort of a commercial for the need to have good security planning. But uh, listen, it's going to be an interesting winter. Uh, I think we're all going to do well. We just have to keep our wits about us, be smart, sensible. And uh, I'm excited by uh, season two. We've got some great uh, ideas we want to try and execute with the podcast.
0: For sure. And uh, it certainly looks looks to be an exciting uh, few weeks, like you say. I think uh, I've got my, I certainly got my popcorn ready and going to get myself some drinks. And I'm going to sit back and watch the fireworks, which I hope is just a figurative term and not real because I'll tell you, it's just scary to have uh, two extreme groups uh, fully armed at election stations and and being prodded by their leadership on both sides to basically take action, uh, you know, to make sure that everything's going right, whatever that means. Uh, So, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's going to be some exciting stuff to to keep tabs on. But uh, I, too, am looking forward to... uh, Episode two, which we'll bring, back, we'll bring to you in a couple of weeks, if not sooner. Uh, we're still ironing out the details on that um, and uh, that you people keep listening and spread the word because we're having fun and we're looking forward to bringing you more. So until next time, I will sign off and uh, talk to you later.
1: Bye, everyone. Have a good one
0: that concludes this podcast we hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, page where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes until next time thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets